This morning we're going to be returning back to, again, to our, <clears throat> to our message or study in Ephesians. We've made it now to the end of chapter 1. Uh, we started the study back uh, in, right after the first of the year. We had a little bit of a break in the summer, and now we've, we have found, we have made our way to the end of chapter 1. So if, for those of you who wonder, we do, or we have been making some progress. We, I know that I can be a little slow, not as slow as some, but certainly slow in some ways. And so uh, we, we have definitely made some progress, and we're making our way through this incredible incredible study. I've just been amazed at some of the things the Lord is showing me through through this uh, study in, in the scriptures. Uh, this, this sermon last week was uh, titled, That Same Power, question mark, that same power. And, and this is part two of that, of that study and verses, really verses 20 through 23. So let me read uh, through 15 through 23 for context as we begin our study, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Paul writes, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me go to the Lord in prayer. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. We pray that you would be, your Holy Spirit would superintend this message, your word, Father, we pray that it would do its work in the lives and hearts of those who hear it. Lord, I pray that the power would be in the message, in the Word of God being explained, that it would not be in the personality of the preacher, that it would be that I would, as the preacher, would decrease as you increase, that they would hear your words, not mine. For that is where the authority lies. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Greta Thunberg first heard about climate change in 2011 when she was eight years old. She professes that she couldn't understand why so little was being done about it, considering the seriousness of the problem. After some time of pondering the issue, she challenged her parents to lower the family's carbon footprint by becoming vegan and giving up flying. And after a couple of years of her pestering her parents, they agreed to these demands, which meant that her mother, an accomplished opera singer, had to give up her international career. In late 2018, Greta began herself to skip school to stage climate strikes, 
and public speeches, which made her an internationally famous climate activist at the age of 15 years. Since then, she has become known for her militant approach to combating climate change. She even contributed to a voiceover uh, to a song called The 1975, where she proclaims this. She says this, So everyone out there, it is time for civil disobedience. It is time to rebel. In an essay she wrote, she says this, I want to feel safe. How can I feel safe when I know that we are in the greatest crisis in human history? Now, beloved, I'm not certain how she reconciles the call for civil disobedience and the need to live in safety, but I digress. Just this week, she gave the following short speech at the United Nations, the the Climate Action Summit of 2019. She said this, This is all wrong. I shouldn't be standing here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to me for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass, a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you, end quote. Beloved, there's much to say about this. As Christians, I want to say our hearts should be for this young lady to come to know Christ. It's very obvious that she is fearful for her future. It's very obvious that she is concerned. She she is concerned about what will what lies in the future for her and for others. And really, who can blame her? For several years, we've heard a steady stream of politicians, professors, media personalities, and activists preach the coming, and I say preach, preach the coming apocalypse due to man's activity on this earth. We have heard how capitalism is a blight to the earth and how humans are a plague on earth. Personally, I can remember growing up in fear of what was to come regarding the future of our earth because of what it was taught to me by some of my teachers and some of the books that I was given as curriculum. I think that most of you would would be able to, to see the same thing in your own life. In the past 20 years, though, climate change has come, become nothing, nothing short of a religion. Beloved, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes states, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. See, this new religion is more, nothing more than a recapitulation of, the ancient, of ancient worship of things created. In Romans 1, The Apostle Paul spoke plainly of those who worship the creature rather than the Creator. He says this about them. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies wouldn't be dishonored among them. Then he says this in verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, 
this worship of idols, this worship of creation is nothing new. But our Creator God, our God, is a jealous God. Just listen to Him in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. He says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or on earth or beneath the earth or, or, or beneath or in the water under the earth, that is. Verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Brethren, you can be assured. You can be assured that this clamoring over climate change is a religion of worshiping the idols made in the image of created things. And all of this fear-mongering is bound to negatively affect the most vulnerable in this world. Truly, truly, this is not just fear-mongering. It's a clamor for power and control. A clamor for power and control of this world. It's nothing changed, right? Nothing changed in this regard. Listen to Ambrose, who wrote these words 1,700 years ago. He said this, The world has been created for everyone's use, but you few rich are trying to keep it up for yourselves. For not merely the possession of the earth, but the very sky, the air, the sea, are claimed for the use of the rich few. The earth belongs to all, not just to the rich. End quote. You see, you see the, the few in power use climate change in today's society to cause fear among the multitudes. And with fear comes power and control. Sadly, they can only offer the doctrine of fear because their religion cannot offer any true hope. They, they, don't, they can't promise that the sun won't heat up and the, the oceans won't, or the sun won't burn up and the oceans won't rise anyway, right? They can't promise that if we made all these changes, those things wouldn't happen, in, according to their way of looking at things. After all, according to their doctrines, we are here by chance. Just this past week, I heard a man, a Wall Street investor named Ray Dalio, who said this. He, he talked about the force of evolution. He says the force of evolution has shaped everything. He said evolution is the single greatest force in the universe. It is the only thing that is permanent, and it drives everything. Beloved, we can't fall for these lies. You see, evolution is not a force. It's not a force. He's correct, though, in one thing. The, the single greatest, there is a single greatest force in the universe. He exists outside of the bounds of time and space, and He controls everything. And beloved, as Christians, we don't have to live in fear of what might happen in this world because He has full control of it. The Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 2, or Colossians 1, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You see, beloved, we don't have to worry about what will happen in this world because we know the One who created it and all that it contains. Psalm 24.1 says this very simply, says this, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. 
You see, according to Colossians chapter 1, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who holds the world together by the word of his power. He is then at the center of all creation. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 15 that he is the preeminent one, the firstborn, the preeminent one of all creation. And that is exactly Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul prays that the church at Ephesus would know the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who would believe. You see, Paul wants the Ephesians to understand the hope of salvation, the glory of the inheritance of Christ, and the surpassing greatness of God's power so that that they would live according to this incredible knowledge. You see that it changes everything. And that's really the point of all of this. Paul is convinced that when believers are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, sealed in the Spirit, they are given wisdom and insight, and this will change the way that they serve the Lord Jesus and the church. It will also change the way they see the world, both inside and outside the church. And it will change the way, or change who, that is, and what they fear in life. If they understand these things, that changes who they fear, who, who and what they fear. And it'll also change the way they see their fellow men. They will no longer see people in categories like Jew or Gentiles or by racial distinctions of any kind because they know that we are created by God in the image of God. It doesn't matter what supposed race that you are part of. And it'll also, if you understand these things, it'll also change your view of eternity. In other words, these truths that Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 1 will change the trajectory of your life if you believe them, if you understand them. You see, Paul was teaching them right doctrine, and and right doctrine will have a profound effect on the hearer's life. Said another way, Paul knows that right doctrine leads to right living. Said even differently, if your living is not right, then I can promise you, promise you there's something wrong with your doctrine. There's something wrong with your understanding of doctrine. J.C. Ryle says this, Doctrine is useless if it's not accompanied by a holy life. It's worse than useless. It, is, it does positive harm. Something of the image of Christ must be seen and observed by others in our private life and habits and character and doings. End quote. But as I, as I said earlier, I would strengthen this by saying that your doctrine is useless and wrong if not accompanied by a holy life. As a matter of fact, this is the way Paul structures this letter. The first three chapters of this letter are packed with doctrine. As Paul teaches them God's plan of redemption, what God is doing in this world to redeem a people for his own possession. But as we have seen, this first chapter is certainly not devoid of application. We've seen much application implied in the doctrine. Now, while the first three chapters are packed with doctrine, the last three chapters are structured around five commands to walk according to a right understanding of God and His agenda in this world. As a matter of fact, he ends chapter 3 by reminding them all that God can accomplish according to His great power, which works within the Christian. This is a great truth which has incredible application of how we live this wor- in this world. 
He starts chapter 4 by applying it. He says this, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with, with which you have been called. So Paul teaches then that the result of understanding the power of God that works within you is that you would walk in a manner that's worthy of his calling. <coughs> and not only does God call us to walk in a worthy manner, he gives us the power to do so. He gives you the power to do so because he lives and the Holy Spirit lives within you. That's Ephesians 3, 20 21. And the result of that is his call to walk in a, in a manner worthy. But that, again, that, that call to walk is accompanied by the power to do so. You see, our deficiencies, if you will, are not due to a lack of power. They're not due to, it's not, our deficiencies are not due to a lack of power of God that power of God working within us. According to Paul, we have the very same power working within us that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at, at, at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. Beloved, it is Paul's prayer then that all believers would comprehend these astonishing truths about the greatness of God's power, the power that's available to them, available to you. You know, he's not saying these things. I mean, let me even say it further, he's not saying these things, he's not teaching this doctrine, so we'll sit around in a holy huddle and just discuss doctrine and then go out into the world and live like pagans who are worried about all the things that pagans are worried about. The next presidential election, the next law passed which will fix our woes, the coming environmental apocalypse. He's, he, didn't, he's, he doesn't want you to understand doctrine so that you would go and live that way. He desires that the church live mightily according to the implications of the truth that he's teaching and according to the implications that we're teaching here. Beloved, Paul taught these astonishing truths to the Ephesian church because he wanted them to recognize what Christ is doing in the world through the church, which is made up of you and I, right? As we complete chapter 1 of Ephesians, I can think of no better way to do so than to highlight, continue to highlight the power of God displayed in Christ, who is the head of, over all things. Now, last week we saw the first two of these astonishing truths about the immeasurable greatness of God. Paul wants us to understand that the power of God, as we said earlier, raised our Lord from the dead. Beloved, our Lord has defeated death. He has been raised from the realm of the dead ones if you will. In, and in Him, we have been made spiritually alive, and we will also be raised in the likeness of His resurrection. That is His physical resurrection. We can, we've been promised this, and it, it is the truth. And that resurrection of Christ, then, then is a clear demonstration of God's immense power. His power has also revered our Lord at, the, at God's right hand. Beloved, God the Father has seated the Lord Jesus Christ on His throne at His right hand. And according to verse 1, He has been seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. As a man, Jesus condescended to the earth. He descended to the earth. He was miraculously conceived 
in Mary's womb and born of a virgin. But from that point forward, he experienced life just like every other man. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2.7. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. He says a little later in Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You see, Jesus lived on this earth, and he experienced life on earth just like you and me. And he did so without sin. And he faced death, even death on a cross. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 7, But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus died on the cross. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, and he was placed in the grave, but he did not remain in the grave. He was raised as a demonstration of God's power, and God did this so that he would highly exalt him and bestow on him the name which is above every name. That's Ephesians 2.9. Beloved, according to Paul, Christ has been seated exceedingly above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that has been named not only in this present age but in the age to come you see there is nothing or anyone who is greater than christ and he and he has ascended to the father's throne and far exceeds everyone and everything you see beloved satan may be the current ruler of this world system But Christ has overcome and has been given the name which is above every name. Beloved, this, brethren, this is the Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth whom you serve. And if that's not enough, let us look at the next two astonishing truths about the immeasurable greatness of God. The power of God relegated all things to him. Look at verse 22a. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Everything has been subjected to him. He has put all things, all things in subjection. By all things, Paul means that Christ has been given dominion over all creation. Beloved, there are no exceptions to this. This truth reaches back to the garden. Man man was created in the image and likeness of God to rule over God's creation as his vice regent. In other words, God made man king and priest of this world but adam the first man failed and lost control of the of the creation when he sinned you see what paul is doing here then he's quoting psalm 8 and and psalm 8 speaks of man's ruling over god's creation which refers to the reason that god created man again to rule as king and priest now the writer of hebrews actually quotes Psalm 8, and he applies the passage to Jesus, the Messiah. And in doing so, he shows that Jesus, who is the last Adam, was given control over what the first Adam had lost in his sinful action. In other words, Jesus has accomplished what Adam and every other man, including you and I, have failed to accomplish. So everything... No exceptions, none, have everything has been placed under the rule of Christ. 
Now, this word translated subjection means to subject or subordinate. It means that everything has been put under Christ's control. Friend and foe alike. Everything. All of creation. Now, I hope that you're asking, if you're asking the right questions, if everything is under his control, then why does everything seem so out of control? To compound your question, I hope that you're thinking, in Ephesians 6.12, Paul himself warns believers of the evil powers which presently war against the church. He urges us to put on the armor of God, which demonstrates that the cosmic powers are still active. So how can Christ be in full control of everything, yet the cosmic powers be still active? Beloved, the answer is, Our Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father and everything has been subjected under His feet. That's reality. But the full exercise of that power will not be fully evident until His return in glory. Now, let me give you an illustration. At the end of World War II, after the invasion at Normandy, Normandy, Allied planners had concluded that the liberation of Paris should be delayed. They didn't want to divert valuable resources away from important operations elsewhere. You see, they they thought that the city should be encircled and then liberated later. Now, Dwight Eisenhower met with General Charles de Gaulle and told him of the plans to bypass Paris. And de Gaulle urged him to reconsider, assuring him that Paris could be reclaimed without difficulty. In other words... While the city was still in the hands of the Nazis, they were for all intents and purposes a defeated foe. That was what de Gaulle was telling Eisenhower, is that you can go walk into Paris because they're not going to stop you, because they're already a defeated foe. In a very real sense then, Charles de Gaulle was declaring to Eisenhower that I am the true ruler of Paris because all I have to do is walk in with my troops and we'll take it over. And thankfully, history says, de Gaulle prevailed with Eisenhower, who agreed to proceed with the liberation of Paris. And three days later, German resistance melted, and most of the 20,000 troops surrendered or fled, and those who fought were quickly overcome. You see, beloved, just like the Germans, our occupying enemy has been defeated. Christ's foes have been vanquished, but this reality will not be fully realized until Christ leads the victory march at his second coming. Just like General de Gaulle led a victory march through the streets of Paris, Jesus will lead his victory march into the holy city, Jerusalem, to claim what is rightfully his already, what has been rightfully given to him. This is in line with 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28, where Paul says that God has already subjected everything under Christ's feet, but, in the, but that in the end, Christ will subject all enemies and will hand the kingdom over to God the Father. You see, Christ will continue His victory march that He started at, the, at His birth, that he, that he went through the cross, He went to the grave, ascended to the Father, He'll continue that victory march into Jerusalem, and He'll rule from Jerusalem as the victor, and He will hand over all enemies to God the Father so that God would be all in all. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And 
to further illustrate, in World War II, the Germans occupied several countries, including France. Sadly, many of the citizens, as you may well know, in these countries cooperated with the occupying Germans. In many instances, they ratted out friends and even family for resisting these occupying evil forces. They did so to try to save their own skin and to make their own lives comfortable. You see, they tragically thought that the Germans were there to stay. They tragically thought that the enemy that the enemy would never be driven out. They thought that the countries would not be liberated, that Hitler wouldn't be defeated. But they were, as we well know, very they were mistaken, right? And many of them suffered grave con- consequences because they cooperated with the enemy. They they suffered consequences when when the, the these countries were liberated by the allies. Beloved, this world is occupied by the ultimate foe. But don't don't cooperate with him. Don't believe that he will rule forever. His days are numbered. Our Lord currently reigns on the throne of God, and he will soon reign here in his kingdom. Listen to Harold Honer. He says this, commentator on the Ephesians. We've heard several of his quotes. At the present, the manifestation of Christ's control is not always evident to us. For there are many inequities, injustices, disasters, unholy actions, and evidences of outright defiance against Christ and God. However, Christ is exercising control without it being obvious to humankind. Without his control, things would be much worse. Hence, he has the right to exercise his control but chooses not to fully exercise it in every instance of violation against God's holy character, end quote. You see, beloved, Jesus Christ is the rightful ruler over everything. God's power has made him that. He stands at the city gate and he is coming in. Nothing can stop him. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for him to come? Have you bowed your knee to him today? Have you you turned to him in saving faith today? Or are you cooperating with the enemy? Foolishly thinking that Christ, the rightful ruler, will never return. Let's look at the fourth astonishing truth about the immeasurable greatness of God's power. This same power rendered our Lord head of the church. Rendered our Lord head of the church. Beloved, this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. You see, Paul has established that Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead as a demonstration of God's power. And he has been seated at the right hand of God, the right hand of God on the throne in the heavenlies as a further demonstration of God's power. And all of creation has been subjected to him, including the spiritual realm, has been put in subjection under his feet. Lastly, this power has given him his head over the church. You see, in this current age, Christ has chosen to lead the church as its head. The entire world has been subjected to him, but he has chosen to do his work in this world through the church. Well, that that includes you and I. We are His church. 
we are the body of Christ. He's chosen to work in this world through His church. That's what makes us so powerful. That's what makes us such a force to be reckoned with, if you will. You see, in Matthew 16, Jesus promised to build His church, and He delegated His authority to it. This delegated authority is made clear in Matthew 16, 19. He says this, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You see, this authority was given to Christ, and Christ gives it to, to the church. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel was given a, a vision of one like a son of man who came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And it says this in Daniel seven fourteen. And to him, this is the son of man, one like a son of man, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The church, then, is an embassy, an outpost of that kingdom. It's been established here on earth. Christ promised to build his church, and he promised that the gates of Hades would not overcome it. Matthew 16 and other places, Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man that Daniel saw. He's been given all authority, and, has, and His dominion is an everlasting one. And it will not pass away and, or be destroyed. But He has chosen to exercise this authority through His church as her head. As such, then, we are the body of Christ. When we act in this world, we are acting on behalf of Christ as His body. And that's Paul's point when he says he gave him his head over all things to the church. You see, everything, everything has been put in subjection to him. And he has been given his head over the church. And we're acting as him in the world. We manifest him then in this current age. You see, this is true because the church is his body and is the fullness of Christ. Augustine says this, the head and the body are Christ holy and entirely. The head is the only begotten Son of God. The body is His church. The bridegroom and the bride, two in one flesh. End quote. You see, all things have been subjected to Christ in this age, but the main manifestation of this power comes through the gospel as it is proclaimed by the church in the world. The gospel, then, is the victory proclamation of the coming king. It's, that, it's the victory proclamation in the streets of, of this world that Christ has overcome and Christ is victorious. So that's why Paul would say, then, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's why, in chapter 3, he says that the power of God resides within us. And that's why in chapter 4 he says that Christ has won the right to give spiritual gifts to men and women in the church, to build the church, and to equip the church. Therefore, he supernaturally gives the church the gifts they need to supernaturally represent him on this earth. Paul ends this section by proclaiming that the body then is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Beloved, there's much ink been spilled over what this phrase exactly means, but I believe that Paul is saying that the body of Christ is completed by Christ himself. 
In other words, he gives his body the power we need to fulfill our mandate, which is to make disciples of all the nations. We have, we're not deficient in any way. We've been given every gift that we need to do what we need to do in this world to fulfill what he has told us to do, the command uh, to make disciples most the command to make disciples. This fits well with Ephesians 4, where Christ has won the right to give gifts to his people so that they will supernaturally serve him in this age. Ultimately, then, the greatest manifestation of this fullness is the ability, the ability to save those whom he chooses to save. Again, listen to Harold Honer says this, certainly a basic and important illustration of his present use of authority is the, his current ability to rescue sinners from the most despicable powers of all, Satan and sin, end quote. You see, his ability to save sinners from their current path to hell is a further manifestation of the power of God. And this forms the connection to chapter 2. You see, Paul, in chapter 2, starts out, and, and, and you. It's the same, the same thing he said in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 13. He goes from the plural, the church, and what God is doing in Christ through the church, to the singular, from the church to you as the individual. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ and raised you up with Him and seated you with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. I don't have to preach it next week. That's not true. I am going to preach it next week. But I want you to see the parallel. I want you to see and understand what Paul is doing here. Paul is saying, look, this same power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that seated him in the heavenly places on the throne of God, the same power that has put subjected all things to him, the same power that made him head over the church is the same power that saved you and me. That's what he's saying. There's no, I mean, it's clear. And therefore, therefore, then, you see the parallels from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, which describe all that God has done in Christ and the manifest, manifestation of his power through Christ. You see the parallels that he's, the, of what he's doing in the individual's life, which is the same thing that he said in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1. Beloved, if you are a believer in Christ, he has made you alive together with him, he has raised you up with him, and he has seated you with him in the heavenlies. This is how the power of God is manifested in your life as a believer. And guess what else? Once you become a believer, the power of God is manifested in the fact that you've been given gifts to serve in the church. You've been given gifts to go and take the gospel to the end of the, end of the earth. Because we are then the representation, we are then the fullness of God, on, or Christ on earth. That's if you're a believer. If you're an unbeliever, this is all nonsense. It doesn't make sense. Because you're looking at this world and the world system. You're looking at the world like Greta Thunberg, who believes that the world is going to come to an end because of global warming or whatever else the scare tactic is for today. 
you're concerned because you don't know who controls this world. The Lord that you serve hasn't been raised from the dead. So you face death. You face eternal death. And in your heart of hearts, you know it. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, you know that you face that death. But Christ has given a way. He has come. He has truly lived on this earth. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He died a death, a sin-atoning death on the cross, that you and I may have eternal life. He was raised from the dead. The power of God raised him to the dead and has now seated him in the heavenlies. And if you believe in his sin-atoning death, and if you believe that he's been raised to life, if you believe that he now reigns from the throne and he's waiting at the city gate to come in, if you believe those things, you can be saved. Sitting here today, and you don't believe. Sitting here today, and you haven't trusted in the finished work of Christ. I beg you, turn to Him. Turn to Him. Satan is a defeated foe. Death is a defeated foe. Sin is a defeated foe. Christ is victorious. Christ is coming again. And he will reign in his kingdom. Don't cooperate with the enemy, beloved. Don't live your life thinking, don't live your life thinking he's not returning. Any day, any hour, he's coming. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. Praise you that you, for your plan of redemption, for the demonstration of your power in saving sinners, in doing exactly what you say you will do, in exactly the timing that you say it'll be. We praise you for the gospel, the victorious message of that Christ is victor over sin, death over every principality, Christ is victor, and that we will be raised again to newness of life with him. Father, we thank you this, this morning again. We thank you for your word. Again, Lord, I pray that it would do its work in the lives of those who hear. In Christ's name, amen.